Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a sermon series called The Life of Christ, a study in the Gospel of Luke. In this series, we're spending time with Jesus to learn from Jesus how to be like Jesus. Thanks for joining us. I'm really thankful for that song. And uh, it helps us as we think about what we're going to look at next. So, how are you with waiting? How are you with longing? Sarah just shared about that challenging thing to look forward to wait, have to wait. Um, when I was a kid, my, we lived in Danville, Illinois, and my grandparents lived in Joliet. My other set of grandparents lived in western Iowa. So it meant road trips. Uh, one was like, you know, two hours, two and a half hours. The other was like eight or nine. And um, I just remember being in the car. Can anybody relate to what I'm going to say next? And I remember asking my parents over and over and over, eventually what my kids would ask me over and over, when? When are we going to get there? How long? And I, I just remember it feeling, even the two-hour trip felt like eternity, you know? And so the question is, how was I going to spend my time in the car till we got there? So my parents would try and come up with creative games and ways to spend the time so it wasn't just a waste of time, but could actually be a good use of the time. And I think of that because today we're going to look at Luke 17 and Luke 21, and the connecting theme is about the kingdom of God. And Jesus is going to be asked, when is the kingdom of God going to come? And so if you're following along in the notes, here's what I hope you'll see is that when Jesus is asked the when question, Jesus' reply is surprising. When asked the when question, Jesus' reply is surprising. And uh, again, I, I don't know how you do with waiting. Again, not only when I was a kid, but some of you, you know, know how hard it is to wait, you know, for the Cubs to win the World Series. <laughs> And that's why it was so sweet. Amen for those of you that are Cub fans, not me, but you. <laughs> and the point is, is that there's other kinds of waiting that's not so pleasant at all. Some people are waiting for a wayward family member to come home. Someone's waiting for their illness to end. Somebody's waiting for their financial situation to turn. It's hard to wait when there is no state budget and your paycheck is based on that. There's waiting all over the place. And Jesus says, there's another kind of waiting that I want to teach you about today. And that's learning how to live in the kingdom of now and not yet. And so that's what we're going to look at. I want to invite you to turn to Luke 17. And we're going to start in verse 20. And we're going to skip over to Luke 21. And again, this idea of the kingdom of God, he's being asked about. And so he's teaching on that. And I don't know if you know, but he actually talks about the kingdom of God in the, in the gospel of Luke 30 times. And so uh, he proclaims it. We've already read about that. And then he sends his disciples out to proclaim the kingdom of God. And so there was a lot of people going, okay, what's the kingdom of God? Like, what do they mean? And so they had lots of questions, including like, when? Like, when's it going to come? You keep talking about it. And so uh, Jesus is going to talk to them about their one question. So before we look at it together, uh, would you pray with me? And now God... As we look at these verses, be our teacher. 
All of us, as we come into this room today, have when questions. And we need to know how to live while we're waiting. And so we pray that you would graciously be our teacher. Show us, Lord, things that are revealed that we do not understand without your help. In your name we ask, amen. Okay, so let me uh, start by telling you right off the bat that there's a mistake in that first gray box. How impressive is that? Um, and so I don't want you to wait to fix it. How's that? So Luke 17, 21 and 22, could you change it to Luke 17, 20 and 21? And then you can just say, you know, Jeff, Jeff just asked me to do that. So anyway, let me read verse 20, the first sentence, and then I'm going to ask you to read the rest of verse 20 and 21 with me. Here we go. Um, here's what it says. Once, on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, now would you read with me? Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Now, some Bible translations say the kingdom of God is within you, but this particular word when it's used with a plural, always means among you, within your grasp, around you. And this idea, what Jesus is saying to them is, you don't realize it, but I am already with you. By the way, I didn't tell you what the kingdom word was, did I? I got so busy telling you 30 times in Luke, I forgot to tell you. Whenever I think of the kingdom of God, uh, here's the definition if you're following along. I, I, I try and replace the word kingdom with the word reign, R-E-I-G-N. It means the reign of God. And uh, wherever the king has his way. And that just helps me remember uh, that the kingdom is wherever the king is getting his way. With me, with you, with the church, with a family, any place on earth, wherever the king is and where the king is getting his way. And uh, back in November 27th, I shared with you when we looked at the kingdom of God passages then, that I talked about how I love the Chronicles of Narnia, how it talks about how a Christ figure, the lion figure, Aslan, has landed. And even though it's never Christmas, always winter, you know, never spring, it, it, this idea was is that the snow was beginning to melt. Now, it hadn't completely melted. You just started seeing green patches of grass. And so people go, something's happened. He's landed. And what I want you to see is that he's landed, but he hasn't completely changed Narnia yet. In a similar way, Jesus is saying, the king is right in front of you. The kingdom of God is already, but the kingdom of God is also not in its fullness yet. So did I already share that? It's already in your midst, but hasn't yet come in fullness now, let me just stop for a second and explain something that I hope is super helpful to you. From time to time, people will say, why did God do this? Why did God do that? And they're talking about evil things. They're attributing to God evil things. And that, that always burdens me. And I know that sometimes people go, well, if God is in control or sovereign over everything, then he must have done that. No, friends, it's not true. So 1 John 5.19, here's what one of his original disciples understood and wants us to understand. We know, he's writing to Christians now, we know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of who, friends? The evil one. Now, remember when Jesus was teaching his disciples to pray the Lord's Prayer, what we commonly call the Lord's Prayer or the disciples' prayer, he said, pray then like this, your kingdom come, your will be done, how? 
on earth as it is in heaven. Why? Because it's not being done on earth as it is in heaven. Not yet. Not in its fullness. And so, friends, the Bible tells us that while Jesus, when he died on the cross, he defeated death. He defeated sin. But what he did was that was the beginning of that reversing the curse. And so God, his plan and his kingdom is unfolding, but it is not yet in its fullness. 1 Corinthians 15 explains more about this. It says that when Jesus comes back, he will not only set up his kingdom, but what he will do is he will begin to deal with all of God's enemies, all the things that oppose God, and he will place them under his feet. And then the Bible says the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Praise God. And when death has been defeated, and when he's handed that, he'll hand that over to the Father, and he will submit himself to the Father at the right hand of God, and he will set up what Sarah just sang about, a new world, a new heavens, a new earth, and he will bring all those who have trusted in him and received his grace to be part of that, And those that have rejected and not trusted in him will be separated forever. These are the things. And so we are not yet there. This world is not the way it was supposed to be. And Jesus is saying, you live between the now and not yet. The question is, how are you going to live between the now and not yet? Well, the question becomes, what's the not yet part? What is it? And if you're following along, He's going to share that in verses 22 through 30. But if you're following along, let me give you the sentence first. He's saying the coming of the kingdom of God not only has come in me already, but the coming of the kingdom of God will be the day the Son of Man is revealed. The coming of the kingdom of God will be the day the Son of Man is revealed. Jesus loved to take this Old Testament phrase, the Son of Man, and apply it to himself. He does it a number of times. You can read it in the New Testament. But it was borrowed from Daniel chapter 7, where it says, one like a son of man is going to come. And Jesus is saying, that's me. It's prophesied, and that's how you know the kingdom of God is here. Now, he says, but I'm coming once, I'm coming again. I'm coming a second time. That's when the son of man will be revealed. Let me read verses 22 through 30. It says, then he said to his disciples, not the Pharisees now, the time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. Now let me just stop here and make some observations. He says this to his disciples about seeing, but he had already said the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. What does he mean by that? We have to understand what the word observed means because to us it means that you can observe it, you can see it with your eyes. But the word there always is used in a sinister way. It means that someone who's looking with hostile intent. So Jesus is saying, look, those of you Pharisees, you've been denying me, rejecting me, not accepting what I say, and so you have hostile intent. Even when you ask me this question, you don't really want to know the answer if it's me. So therefore, it will not be something you're going to be able to observe. You will not be able to pick it out because unless God shows you that, unless your heart changes, you will not be able to understand this revealed truth. 
But then he turns to his disciples and says, look, there's going to be days after I leave here on earth the first time where you will long to see the days of the Son of Man and you will not see them. In other words, he's saying is you're going to go through a waiting period where you're going to long and you're going to wish that it already happened and it will not have happened yet. Prepare for that. Then he goes on in verse 24 and says this. Uh, Verse 23, people will tell you there he is or here he is. Do not go running off after them for the son of man in his day will be like the lightning which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also it will be in the days of the son of man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given up in marriage to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. Are there anything wrong with any of those things I'm talking about right there? No, they're just the ordinary events of life. Life's just going on and on like it always has, right? But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. Now, he shares some things about what the day the Son of Man being revealed is going to be like. And let me just, before I say anything more, let me just say, you you guys give those of us that teach on Sunday mornings uh, privileged honor to spend time in the Word of God in a larger amount of way. And I just, I can't thank you enough. But as I was spending time this week doing that, Uh, I was struck over and over again. I kept underlining in my Bible the word, the day, that day, the days of the day. And I just noticed he's talking about the fact that there's a day coming called that day. And it's a day that he wants us to be conscious of and live for. And it's the day the Son of Man will be revealed a second time. And so how do we live with that? And some of you know that I, I read this poem years ago by a mentor of mine named Joe Bailey. And um, like Sarah, he had also lost three kids uh, before the age of 18. He and his wife knew tremendous grief. And he used to travel around the country helping people that were going through grief. But he wrote an incredible number of things. And one was called a Psalm of Anticipation. Listen to what he says. I think we have it also on the screen. Lord Christ... Your servant, Martin Luther, said he only had two days on his calendar. Today and that day. And that's what I want too. And I want to live today for that day. And Jesus is planting in our minds days, important days, how we live between the days. And so let me just talk to you really quickly about what this day is going to be like. If you're following along, I already read about it, but it's that day will be sudden and visible to all. That day will be sudden and visible to all. He says, look, you're going to be tempted after I leave. You're going to be tempted to when people say, here's the Messiah, here's the Christ, here he is. You're going to be tempted to say, well, let me go check it out. He says, you're not going to need to do that because everybody is going to know when this day happens. They don't know it yet, but it's on everybody's calendar. And it will be a day that whether you see CNN or Fox News, won't matter, because it'll be covered by everybody. 
Everybody will see it. Revelation 1-7 tells us this as well. If you've not seen this, it says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds. And let's just talk about how many people will see him. Let's read this together. And every eye will see him. I'll go on. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen, Lord Jesus. And so it's some, he's just basically saying, it's like the lightning from one end to the other. You won't be able to miss it. You, you'll go, uh, I think it's now. Now, he also says this, if you're following along, that day um, will reveal what I love and if my heart is his. So that day will be sudden and visible to all. That day will reveal what I love and if my heart is his. He basically says, look, people in Noah's day and Lot's day, everything was going on as normal. But the moment the flood came, the moment sulfur and fire started raining down, Life ended for those people. I mean, everything stopped. There was no more of life as normal. And he's saying, that's what it's going to be like on the day the Son of Man returns. It's going gonna, it's gonna to bring whatever people were caught up with to a halt. Everything will be revealed on that day for where people really are, no matter what they've been acting or pretending or posing, no matter what they've been investing in, it will be clear on that day, in that moment. Wow. And so the question is, is as I'm living today, what do I love? As I'm living today, is it clear that I have trusted my one and only life to Jesus Christ so that he can reign in me as Lord. We talk all the time about we are fighting shallow Christianity. How do we fight shallow Christianity? You know what? Shallow Christianity is unsurrendered Christianity. Shallow Christianity wants Jesus to be our Lord, ticket to heaven, but not be our Savior, ticket to heaven, but not our Lord, not the one that rearranges our whole life and all our priorities and all our loves. But he's saying on that day, it'll be clear the people that have and the people that have not. And he talks about this separation process as well. And so let me continue reading. Verse 31, on that day, no one who is on the housetop with possessions inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Then there's these three words I'm going to come back to later that Jesus says, remember Lot's wife. Verse 33, whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, two people will be in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. Where, Lord, they asked. He replied, where there is a dead body, there the vultures gather. In other words, whatever needs to be taken care of will be taken care of. It, It gets sniffed out. It gets seen out. And so this incredible message right here of just what do I love and is my heart his? And I just want to stop. If there's anybody in this room right now and you've never trusted Christ, today is the day of salvation for you. This is what God is after. He's after your heart not to ruin you, but to make you the person you were always meant to be. And the only way is if you let him reign in you and you let him give you his gracious reign in your life. And so you could do that right where you're sitting. If you call on the name of the Lord, you can be saved from this and from 
wrecking your one and only life and spending it poorly because you never did that. So then we move over to chapter 21. Do you mind doing that with me? And I know there's quite a few verses today, so thanks for your patient following along. But now there's another when question. This is a little differently, and it takes place in the temple courts. So verse 5, I'll start, and uh, eventually in the next section, I'll invite you to read verse 31 in the gray box. But for now, let me read this through verse 24. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to take place? Now let me pause here for a second. Historians, they weren't even Christians. People like Josephus and others talked about the temple at this time. This was approximately 30 AD, right? So what happened is, is that this temple was being under construction already for several decades. And it would go on for another couple more. And so the historians tell us this was like if you saw, you always went up to Jerusalem. If you saw this temple, it was one of the major wonders of the world at that time. Uh, they used this beautiful white stone and then gold, and so in the sun it would gleam, and people just were blown away. But it was also made of stones that were incredible. So like the foundation stones, people have said, were like the size of boxcars. I don't know if you've ever stood next to a boxcar, but if that's like the foundation stone, that's big. So I can see why his disciples were going, wow. And so they're just making conversation, and Jesus goes, let me just tell you what's coming. There's coming a day when those stones won't even be on top of each other. God's judgment's coming, Jerusalem, and you're impressed with something that's not going to be permanent. It's not going to last. Hmm. He goes on. Verse 8, he replied, watch out that you are not deceived. Watch out, he says. For many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilences in various places, and fearful events, and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison. And you will be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. And so you will bear testimony to me. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. Stand firm, and you will win life. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. 
Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out and let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment in fulfillment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will all fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. Now what he's saying here is that you need to know, you're asking about the temple. Here's what's going to happen And again, we're going to see in your lifetime. So he's describing all the events. He's going to say, look, you're going to be hated. You're going to suffer. Uh, There's also that there's going to be all kinds of upheaval in the natural and the nations. It's just going to be messy, messy time. And then here's how you're going to know it's close is when the armies gather. Now, what Jesus is prophesying came true 40 years later. Actually, a little even less. In 66 AD, historians tell us that the Romans came and surrounded Jerusalem. And by 70 AD, they came into the city, they burned the temple, they knocked every stone down to totally destroy it, level it, and they also just raised the city to the ground. And Jesus said, it's going to be a tough time. We read in the book of Acts, his disciples suffered. Some of them died. James, others. But what happened is, as he said, this is a time, this is an opportunity to bear testimony to me. So if you're following along, what I want you to see is that he says, look, before the end of time ever comes, first he and his disciples will suffer and the temple leveled. First he and his disciples will suffer. Now let me just talk to you about why Jesus suffered. Jesus didn't suffer just to suffer. The Bible says is that he had to suffer in order to bring us back to God. The Bible says all of us have been separated by God because we have disordered the hearts of our lives and put ourselves in the center. And because of sin and the penalty of that, that's why we have death. That's why we have disease. That's why we have hatred. That's why we have so much division and nations have upheaval. And so Jesus came to reverse the curse and he suffered. And on the cross, he began to break the power of that. His kingdom was getting established and unfolding. And then when he left this earth, he didn't say, now the kingdom is on pause till I get back. He says, I'm going to send my Holy Spirit that every person who trusts in me will now be able to experience the kingdom of God by letting the Holy Spirit not only live in them, but submit to him and surrender to him and follow his lead. And he'll open your eyes and help you understand things you could never understand. He'll live in you. He's the same Holy Spirit that's lived in me. I will give you a gift until I come back. You will be able to live this life. You will have the resources you need to live. I will give you words. I will give you wisdom. I will give you fellowship. I will give you help. But first he must suffer. Praise God he suffered, friends. Where would we be without his suffering? Notice it goes on and says, then there will be an undefined time of waiting. Let me read verses 25 through 33. There will be signs in the sun, moon and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up 
and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. He told them this parable, look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. I believe he's saying, look, the reason why you're going to see this is because you're going to live, while you're going to still be living, many of you, when this temple is raised and Jerusalem is destroyed. And then he goes on, truly, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So as we read this, let me just stop and, and say something about this undefined time of waiting. In the Christian world, you probably know this, but there are people that spend hours and weeks and days figuring out charts and maps and timing and saying, I think we're really close. And friends, all I want to say is what I read to you earlier about all the upheaval that has been going on in every generation since Jesus said this. So every generation of Christians since Jesus was here have believed they were in the last days. I'm not saying that to discount. They were simply saying, oh my goodness, these things are happening. And so it's easy to try and say, I think we're in this generation. I want to say this, let's live as if we are, but we may not be. This may be an undefined time of waiting. Where do I get that? Mark 13, 32, look at this passage. Maybe you've read it before. But concerning that day or that hour, let's just all read, who knows? No one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Therefore, friends, what do we spend our time doing? Figuring out when or deciding how we're going to live between now and not yet? I would recommend the latter, and so does Jesus. But I would also say we need to make sure we don't blow this off. Some of you know this, but here's 2 Peter 3. 2 Peter 3, this is one of other Jesus' original disciples, and here's what he writes. First, I want to remind you that in the last days there will come scoffers who will do every wrong they can think of and laugh at the truth. This will be their line of argument. So, Jesus promised to come back, did he? Then where is he? He'll never come. Why, as far back as anyone can remember, everything has remained exactly as it was since the first day of creation. They deliberately forget this fact, that God did destroy the world with a mighty flood long after he had made the heavens by the word of his command and had used the waters to form the earth and surround it. And God has commanded that the earth and the heavens be stored away for a great bonfire at the judgment day when all the ungodly men will perish. But don't forget this, dear friends, that a day or a thousand years from now is like tomorrow to the Lord. He isn't really being slow about his promised return, even though it sometimes seems that way, but he is waiting for the good reason that he is not willing that any should perish, and he is giving more time for sinners to repent. What a merciful God. The day of the Lord is surely coming, as unexpectedly as a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise, and the heavenly bodies will disappear in fire, and the earth and everything on it will be burned up. And so since everything around us is going to melt away, what holy, godly, God-centered lives we should be living. And then 
you should look forward to that day and hurry it along, that day when God will set the heavens on fire and the heavenly bodies will melt and disappear in flames, and then the new Jerusalem will be built, and he will make everything new, like Sarah read, as Revelation 21 says. Now verse 13 and 14, he goes on. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. So friends, here's what I want you to see as we close this section of scripture. How we wait, if you're following along, is an opportunity or a trap. How we wait between the now and the not yet as we wait for Jesus' return is an opportunity or a trap. That's what Jesus says. Let me read verses 34 through 36. Be careful, or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you suddenly like a trap, for it will come on all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and so that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. So how we wait is either an opportunity or a trap. He says, look, as you wait, you can actually receive me. You can share me with other people. You can serve me with your one and only life and make it count. That's why 1 Corinthians 15 says, Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not going to be in vain. That means that the way you do your work can actually be as unto the Lord. The way you love your kids, the way you love your spouse, the way that you interact with your friends who may not yet believe can all be as unto the Lord. You don't have to waste that time. You can live today for that day. So how do we do that? How do we bring this home? And friends, I just want to say, he also says, though, that if you're not careful, your hearts can get weighed down. And this whole thing will become like a trap to you where all of a sudden you realize, oh my goodness, I was deceived. I wasn't watching. I wasn't paying attention to what Jesus said was most important in life. I did other things. Have you ever heard of the monkey trap? I've told this before, but years ago I heard of it. I've never forgotten it. I guess people that are poachers and people that try and capture monkeys, the way they do it is they, they want to capture them alive. What they do is they'll take a coconut and they'll drill it out with a certain size. They've mastered this. And then they drill out the inside. And inside they'll place something sweet like a piece of candy. And then they'll nail it to a chain and they'll chain it to a tree. And then they'll just wait. And the monkeys descend on all those different coconuts by the trees. What they discover when they smell something sweet is they stick their hand inside the coconut. And as they get a hold of that piece of candy, they're ready to bring it out and eat it. And they realize as long as they hold on to it, they can't get their hand out. So now, as their captors begin to descend on them, they have a decision to make. Will I let go of this or will I hold on to it? And sadly, what they've found is that most monkeys, for a piece of candy, will hold on to it to their own destruction. And Jesus says, don't let this day come on you like a trap. Let it be an opportunity. I'm waiting so that you have time to know me, to serve me, to share me, and point people to me. Because my suffering wasn't just for you. It was for them, too.
So living between the now and that yet, let me just share with you what I saw this week. If you're following along, what my heart loves most determines what I look for. What my heart loves most determines what I look for. I told you that I really appreciate the privileged opportunity to study the Word of God. So years ago when I was in college, my buddy and I, we used to try and encourage each other with Scripture, but we often tried to look for the shortest Bible verses so we'd keep remembering them longer. Anybody relate to what I'm saying? So like Jesus wept was unbelievable help to us, you know, two words. You know, rejoice always. Yay, I know another verse. You know, that kind of thing. I admit it's shallow, but that's what helped us at the time. So one day I'm reading Luke 17, and I come across these three words. I go, three words. Remember Lot's wife. I memorized the Bible verse. And I would share it with him. And so we'd, whenever we'd see it, so we'd go, remember Lot's wife. And then I started asking myself, what does that verse mean? Why did Jesus say this? What did Lot's wife do? We don't have time to look at Genesis 19 right now, but if you don't know this, when Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed, the angels of God mercifully took Lot, his wife, and two daughters out of the city. They dragged them out because they were so hesitant. And so they said, run, don't look back. You know, flee to the mountains. And so Lot, his daughters, his wife were all running. And then Lot's wife looked back. Why did she look back? Because her heart was there. Wherever your heart is, is what you'll look for. And if you're following along, what my heart loves most determines what I hold on to. So here's, here's why I'm getting to Why did I bring up Lot's wife? It was all had to do with the way she looked, what she watched for, what she looked to. So Jesus, all throughout these two chapters, you know what he's been saying? He's been saying, watch out. Lift up your eyes. Don't be like Lot's wife. Don't look back. Look up. Look to me. Look for me. Look for my kingdom. Join it. But it's all the way that we lift up our eyes. It's what we're looking for. It's what we hold on to. And so the question is, is it Jesus? Is he my greatest treasure? Augustine, as we shared this before, said that the problem with sin isn't so much bad behavior. It's disordered loves of our heart. We were made to have God in first place. We were made to have God be the first in our order. Why? So that we wouldn't love anything else? No, so that we would love everything else better. When I love the Lord properly, I love my wife better. When I love the Lord properly, he helps me look at other people. And so it's all about which way we're looking. And so, friends, he uses one more phrase about looking, and it's the word watching. If you're following along, am I watching and praying as I wait for Christ's return? Am I watching and praying as I wait for Christ's return? Um, Last weekend, Trish and I had an opportunity to go to Indiana. Some of you know we have three kids living in three different states right now. And our oldest son, Jeremy, and his wife, Laura, live in Indiana, about an hour and a half, two hours north of Indianapolis. So Jeremy just recently graduated with his Master's of Fine Arts. In uh, He's a photography professor, and so this was a big deal. And he had an exhibition out in Boston and some other universities, and so we didn't get to go out to that, but they had one at his university there in Indiana. And so we drove over and got a chance to celebrate that. 
And we have two grandkids uh, in Jeremy's family that are four and two. And maybe you've had this experience before, but as we are driving, we get to, they have this big glass window in the front of their house. And as we drive up, there's these two little kids looking out the window at us. And I remember the moment I saw that, I thought, why are they watching and waiting? Because they love us. You see, you look for what you love. And I thought to myself, the Lord just seemed to say, are you looking for me? As you motor through life, are you wanting me? Are you looking for me? And you know, this is big. And when we think about praying, many of us think, oh, watch and pray. It's another thing I got to do. You know, praying can be like we breathe. Praying is the way we go through our whole day with God saying, God, show me how to do this with you. God, what do you think about this? God, how do you want me to see that person? Praying, watching and praying can become a lifestyle. We don't have to quit doing our everyday lives. We can do them better because the order of our hearts is him. This is what he wants us to know. This is the good news he came to make possible. That's why the early Christians called his second coming their hope. So one last set of verses, Hebrews 10. Look at this. This is how we can help each other. Let us hold unswervingly, not to candy, but to the hope we profess. For he who promised that he would come again is faithful. And let us consider, let's spend our time now, considering how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Would you mind just bowing your head and asking the Lord, Lord, is there anything I'm holding on to? Is there anything my heart has suddenly been weighed down by or captured by instead of you? What do you want to say to me, Lord, about that? Show me how to surrender. Show me how to let your grace flow in my life as I let you reign in me.